0: Amen. Well, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 12. Seems like we have been in this chapter for a while, but uh, we're gonna be finishing it it up today. Moving into chapter 13. Matthew chapter 12, if you need to follow along in the Bible in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 972. Matthew chapter 12, verse 43 972 is in the Pew Bible. It says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And so also will it be for this evil generation. And while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. And someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. And he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, here are my mother, here is my mother, and here are my brothers. And whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. This is the word of the Lord. How many of you guys have ever heard of the name Anthony Flew? You guys ever heard of him? I know Brian, if if he were here this morning being a philosophy major in college, he would have been familiar with him. Uh, Have you ever heard of him, Rob? He was kind of the Richard Dawkins of his day. He, uh, very very famous atheistic philosophy uh, guy, really uh, was kind of a bulldog for atheism, uh, he would go around. In fact, one of my Bible college profs, Gary Habermas, used to debate with him, and they would go around the country debating atheism versus Christianity, and and he powerfully argued that there is no God. And he championed the atheist movement for years. In fact, if you were an atheist and and you were somewhat of a kind of intelligentsia about it, you you uh, really followed um, what would have been in that day, kind of more your podcast kind of things, you know, stuff like that, whatever they were back then. I don't think they quite had TED Talk yet. But anyway, they uh, if you followed that kind of thing, then you knew the name Anthony Flew. And uh Anyway, whenever he was 81, and I I think he's still alive, I'm not sure, but whenever he was 81, he shocked the philosophical world by declaring publicly that he now believes that God is real. In fact, he said that it is the only answer for the complexity that we see in the universe, and yet the incredible order that we find. It absolutely shocked the philosophical world and and sent it for an absolute tailspin. And and there were many Christians who, who celebrated that announcement and who declared that Anthony is now one of us. But was he really better off? Because he didn't hold to Christ. He didn't hold to the God of the Bible. He held to basically a deist God, which is If you're familiar with deism, it says basically God kind of spun the world like a top and then just leaves it alone and doesn't have anything really to do in the world. It's the quintessential American heresy. And so basically he was a philosophical squatter. You know what a squatter is whenever you leave your home for so long empty and homeless people just kind of move in and make themselves at home? Basically he is a philosophical squatter. He moved into our house and just kind of made himself at home. Uh, Even though... He didn't quite belong there. And I would argue that his worst, his his last state is actually worse than his first. I would actually argue that because as much as he might say now, yes, I believe in a God, the fact of the matter is he's still empty. There's still no spirit indwellment. There's still no confession of Christ in that and that's really what we're kind of looking at this morning in this text Uh, just to give you a little background Jesus just remind you where we've been really Matthew chapter 11 through Matthew chapter 13 really focuses in on especially 11 through 12 on these controversy stories and it began all the way in, in, in chapter 11, but specifically in chapter 12, we are focusing in and honing in on these opposition that Christ is getting, this growing opposition due to, uh, how he deals with the Sabbath, due to his healing. And in beginning in verse 22, there was kind of this sub theme that began where he healed a a demon-possessed man. And and you know, we've said this for a few weeks now, that he was unable to speak, he was unable to see, and Christ uh, healed him so that he was able to do both. And now we kind of trace that theme all the way through. We saw the speaking against Christ, that the spiritually blind, those who are still demonically influenced, they are unable to speak well of Christ, and they are unable to see Christ, the God of this world, as blind. Their eyes so that they cannot see. And so we saw that, and now Jesus is going to kind of bring that to a conclusion in these uh, few verses that we're looking at this morning. It's kind of culminating this, this idea. And He's bringing it to a conclusion with, a, with a, a small little parable and a pronouncement. A small little parable and a pronouncement. And what He's warning us against is the danger of half-conversion, you might call it. Just like Anthony Flew, who said that, yes, I believe that there is a God, I just don't necessarily believe in, in the biblical God. So, so you can say he converted in one sense, but, but it is a half-conversion. It's, it's not a full-conversion, and, and half-conversion is really no conversion at all. It is really nothing of the sort. Or maybe they're those who benefit from from common grace. They they come to church every Sunday and they hear and they associate with God's people, but there's no real commitment in their hearts. Maybe that's you this morning. They gain some benefit from being at church, but there's no real relation to Christ. Christ. And that's what Christ is bringing this to a conclusion that if you will not be Christ's opponent, then you must be his brother or sister or mother. We'll talk about that language shortly. And so because of the threat of this worse last state, beloved, we must be rightly related to Christ. That is the only answer to not be the enemy of Christ, is to be rightly related to him. And so the question is, how can we do that? How can we become rightly related to Christ? And Christ is gonna give us these two comparisons that he does in the text. He's gonna show us the danger that we must beware of neutrality, and he's also gonna show us that we must become children of God. So let's look at this together, beginning in verse 43. He says, he says here in verse 43, he says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. I want you to notice, first of all, that we must beware of neutrality. We must beware neutrality. Neutrality. And what are we talking about here? Well, beginning in verse beginning in verse 43, Christ comes back to this kind of picture of demonization. This, this idea of demon possession, and, and this is really kind of uh, making a bookend with, with, verse, uh, with verse 22 that we saw before. He healed the demon-possessed man. Now he's going back to kind of a parable of a demon possession, and he says here that when a demon, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking to find rest, but it finds none, by the way, don't be too uh, mystified by that phrase "waterless places." It's 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 just referring to the desert. It's not referring to some you know uh, demonic limbo or something like that. It's not referring to purgatory or, or anything like that. What it's what it's doing is back in Jesus's day, the desert was you know you didn't have any harvest, you didn't have any rain. And so it was devoid of God's blessings, and so it was it was seen as kind of a haunt for demons, and people were kind of afraid to sleep out in the wilderness because they were uh, because they were afraid that this was a place where demons like to hang out. And yet Christ is saying that when the the unclean spirit leaves the man, he goes out to the desert, he goes out to the wilderness, and he's looking for rest, but he finds none. And so very simply, he says, I'm going to go back to the house where I came from. And notice he's referring to the person as a house. And he says, I'm going to go back there. But when he goes back there, he finds it swept. He finds it put in order, and he finds it empty. So having none of it, he goes out and he finds seven other spirits more evil than himself and they go back and they make themselves at home in the house, demonic squatters, you might say. And here's the point, verse 45. And the last state of that person is worse than the first the last state of that person is worse than the first. It's a very, it's a very simple story, very simple. And, and by the way, this is a parable. So it's, it's not really, Matthew's not giving it to us to describe spiritual warfare. It's, he's not giving it to us to, to learn something about demons. This is just kind of a, a story that he's giving in order to make this greater, bigger point that the worst, that the, that the last state of this person is worse than the first. It comes at the tail end of of verses 38 through 42. You remember what happened there, that the Pharisees and the scribes come to Christ and they say, we wanna see a sign from you. We want to see you. You okay? You're healing these demons. We said that you're not doing it. That you're doing it by Beelzebul, and you said no, and proved very effectively that no, I'm doing it by the kingdom of God. I'm doing it by the spirit of God, and therefore, uh, the kingdom of God is among you. And the Pharisees say, "Okay, that's fine. Well, show us some signs to prove it." It's very arrogant. It's very insulting. And, and all of these signs, Jesus is telling them, he said, I'm not going to give you a sign anymore. Why? Because all the miracles, all the signs in the world will not satisfy your unbelief. It will not satisfy you. And that's essentially what he is demonstrating here. The real target of his parable is at the end of verse 45 when it says, so also will it be for this evil generation. And again, that word generation, you can trace it all the way through chapter 12, where he says again and again, an evil generation seeks for a sign. Jonah, the Ninevites will rise up and condemn this generation. The queen of the south will rise up and condemn this generation and your last state will be worse than your first. This is a warning to the religious leaders, to those who experience the benefits of his power and his ministry, but they refuse to take his side. They will not commit. They refuse to hear his words. They refuse to become a disciple. Notice that the demon, he comes back to the house He finds it swept. He finds it organized, which is what put in order means. It's organized, it's ready to go, it's ready for a new tenant, but it's empty. And it's just ready for the taking. It's just ready for the new tenant. And by the way, you notice that the demon, when he goes in, he does not come back by himself. He goes back and finds seven other spirits. By the way, the, in the Jewish mindset, seven is kind of a round number, and so it's a it's kind of a picture of total dom- denomination, total total domination, total dom- You know what I'm trying to say? Total takeover. It's a complete and total disaster. In fact, you can talk to any real estate agent, talk to any homeowner who's had to go through this, and they will tell you that leaving a house on the market empty for a long time is the worst thing you can do for the value of your home. It's the worst thing you can do. You cannot be neutral. You cannot be neutral. Look at, look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. I think I have 19 and 20 up there. Let's just turn there. It says here, beginning in verse 19, it says that they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. In fact, we've already seen earlier in Matthew chapter twelve and verse thirty, where Jesus says that those who are not with me are against me. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no neutrality with Christ. You cannot be a a Christian Switzerland. You cannot be neutral when it comes to Christ. And yet so many people try. So many people try. So what what does this look like? What does it look like um, to have this neutrality? The the Puritans used to call it the almost Christian. The almost Christian. They come to church and, and they receive some benefit Maybe it's uh, maybe it's social, uh, maybe it's social currency, maybe it's just respectability, maybe it's just trying to clean up their act. Notice in Second Peter, it talked about those who escape the defilements of the world. Maybe they start going to church and they and they uh, because they they think that it's going to make them a better person. And they, they want to clean up themselves. In fact, if you want to see the quintessential example of almost Christianity, go out to the courthouse at, in downtown Batesville and look at that sign they have up there that says, go to church on Sunday, religion can help. You want to see the quintessential idea of what the almost Christian is, there it is. They associate with God's people. The house is swept and put in order. It looks good, but it's all external. There is no real commitment to Christ. It's whitewashed tombs. They look great on the outside, but on the inside, they're filled with deadness. With dead men's bones. It's it's they wash the outside of, of the cup, but the inside is left filthy. They clean the outside of the pot, but the inside is left filthy. I, I have to be careful with that. I I taught that passage at a church camp one morning and talk about and I actually had a pot that was so clean on the outside, and I showed it on the inside, it's full of rust and stuff like that, and I became known as the pot preacher. I don't use that illustration anymore. (laughs) Not exactly what I wanted to get across there. But it it was. It's the outside of the pot is so clean, but the inside is filled with gunk and filth. And that's what the outside, that's what the almost Christian is. The house is swept, it's put in order, but it's empty. That's what the almost Christian looks like, trying to be neutral about Christ. But what about the Christian? What, we can do this too. What, what, what about them? Maybe you're here this morning, it's the, it's the let go and let God Christian, you might say it's the one that is trying to stop a sin and maybe you've gone through this roller coaster again and again and again where you have committed over promising you commit the sin and you say lord i'm never going to do this again and you try again and again and again to stop it you give it to god give it to god give it to god but you never really replace it with faithful obedience from the heart And as a result, your soul grows more and more restless until finally you fall back into it again and oftentimes even harder than you did the first time when you first tried to get rid of it. We know what that roller coaster is like, don't we? I've told you before, going to camp for three years as a teenager, I threw away the same Aerosmith CD three different times. I would commit to get rid of that filth and then after but I wouldn't replace it with faithful obedience and a hunger for God's word I would just keep on in my routine and after a while I I'd, I'd, I'd get to wanting it again. We've all been through that, right? And beloved, that's the danger. You know what the real danger of that is? Is that the more and more and more you try to give it to God, give it to God, give it to God, but you're not replacing it with faithful obedience. You're not replacing it with heart-driven, spirit-enabled relationship with God. You just just go back to your routines, and the more you fall back into it, after a while, you start to get frustrated. Frustrated. And you start to fall into despair and some people even start to say, you know, I tried that religion thing and it just didn't work. In fact, there's a whole thing today called deconstruction, which is, which is what that's all about. There's a whole movement out there from people who are frustrated, who, are, who, are, who have tried this before and they have failed and now they're helping other people come out of Christianity In fact, they even have what you might call anti-churches where they all get together and discuss their deconstruction. It's crazy. That's exactly what happens. Beloved, get off that roller coaster. Aren't you tired of that frustration? Aren't you tired of living like that? Stop trying to be neutral with Christ. Stop trying to be neutral about your sin. And don't just try to mortify it, don't just try to kill it, but replace it with faithful obedience and faithful love from the heart. The only way to replace love, the only way to stop loving your sin is to fall in love with a greater pleasure, is to replace it with a greater love. And beloved, God is the only one who will fulfill you. He is the only one whose love is greater than anything that that sin is trying to give you. All of our little passions, whether they be politics or whether they be video games or whether they be uh, social clubs or whatever they are, all of our little passions will ultimately fail us. And yet the more we pursue God, the more we will find he is faithful. And so we must beware neutrality. Neutrality is dangerous. We must beware. And instead, what must happen? We must become children of God. We must become children of God. Look in verses 46 through 50. And while Christ was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. So they interrupt Christ's teaching and they're standing outside wanting to speak to him and you see verse 47, someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. Now, um, I need to make a little note about that verse. If you're using the ESV, that verse is actually in the footnotes is where you'll find that. Uh, Most of your other translations, you'll see it there. And I think the other translations are right. I think they should have left it in the text. And if you have any more questions about that, you can you can see me afterwards. I don't want to interrupt the flow here, but I do want you to understand why your verse 47 is not there. So, but looking on into it, it says. Moving on, I want you to notice Jesus's answer in verse 48 and 49. By the way, it really doesn't affect the story, but. But in verse 48 and 49, he, he says, Jesus replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he says, here is my mother and my brothers. Some people look at this and say, is Jesus rejecting his family? Well, well, in a, in a sense, he is. In a sense, he is. Now, later on, he's, Want to make sure they're taken care of, especially his mother. But what's going on here? You, it, it kind of helps you to understand what's happening when you understand something about the culture. This is an honor shame culture, right? And in the in an honor shame culture, when you do something that brings. Shame to yourself. You're not just bringing shame to yourself. You're bringing shame to your family, and to a certain extent, you're even bringing shame to the entire village that you live in. You remember uh, the parable of the prodigal son when he left. That was that was such a shameful act to his father. But the fact that the father uh, granted the request was not only a shame upon him, not only a shame upon his entire family, but that entire village was brought to shame because the father did not punish the son immediately but actually granted his request at first. And the same thing that's happening here is that Jesus in his confrontation with the religious leaders and doing all of his miracles, he is bringing shame and a bad reputation to his family and even to a certain extent to his entire village. And so it's, it, it's kind of like, um, to a lesser extent, um, in, uh, embarrassing yourself in front of the preacher, you know, and being afraid that he's gonna look at your whole family the wrong way. We don't really do that anymore, but, you know, sometimes I walk through Walmart and I'll see you guys, you know, kind of duck into the aisle or something. No, I'm kidding, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see that very much. Not anymore, I should say, so... <laughs> Um, that's kind of what's happening and that's why they're wanting to speak to him because they're wanting to get him essentially to stop and Christ is turning those cultural values on their head And he tells them, no, no, no. Those are not my mother and brother outside. Who are my mother and my brothers? And he stretches his hands and points to his disciples. Notice he's not pointing to the whole crowd, but he's pointing specifically to his disciples and says, these are truly my mother and my brothers. How can that be? He explains it in verse 50. He says, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Now, don't push that language too far. You know, some people, I mean, we can understand, right? We can, I mean, we refer to each other here as brothers and sisters. When I call on people to pray, I kind of have a habit of saying brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so and uh, some of you, I don't, I don't know why. I just, for whatever reason, I've, I'm in my habits of using certain things here and there. And we can understand that, you know, guys who are who are real, have a lot of camaraderie, they'll refer to one another as brothers, right? Uh, women who have camaraderie there, they'll refer to one another as sisters. Um, in fact, there was uh, something, I, I think, I, I can't remember what it was, it was like a year ago, I can't remember, but... Uh, we were joking around in the office and I said something to our bookkeeper, Vicky. and I thought afterwards, I was like, you know, she might've taken that the wrong way. And so I called her up and said, hey, I just want you to know I'm sorry. She's like, oh, you're my little brother, don't worry about it. So, uh, okay. You no, know, we can do that, right? We, we understand that. But mother? I, I don't think I've ever looked at Wesley over there and said, yo, dude, you're my mother. That'd just be weird, wouldn't it? It'd just be really weird. Now, I can imagine the disciples are looking at it and saying, really? Mother? Brother? Sister? What are you talking about? In other words, he's avoiding the possibility that we can in any way misunderstand what he's saying here. That the relationship that he's talking about is beyond just camaraderie. He is talking about an intimate relationship close, organic connection, family connection to himself. And those who do the will of his father in heaven are those who are the true family of Christ. That's the idea. Now, don't misunderstand that. Some people can misunderstand that and see, you see right there, Jesus doesn't preach salvation by grace through faith because you have to do the will of the Father, right? Let me ask you a question What must you do in order to be part of someone else's family? I've told you before, I'm related to Johnny Cash. I uh I thought that that was like a family legend I really did but my aunt did the uh genealogy and and she was involved in all of that and uh and uh I told her I was like is that really real and she's like no actually it is we are related my 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 grandfather's mom her maiden name was Myra Cash she was from the Kingsland ryzen area in fact my whole family's from the Ryzen area and and um and anyway and she was uh, Johnny Cash's aunt, I think it was. I'm not in the will. That's the point, okay? And so it's, uh, it's really far away. He doesn't know me. Obviously, I only know him by his, uh, by his reputation. So let me ask you a question. If I was to walk up to Johnny Cash's kids and knock on the door, hey guys, uh, listen, you know, I'm part of the family too. And uh, whatever it was that he left behind, I, I think I should get a portion of it. Right? I, I think I should get I think I should get in on that. I, I, I'm part of the family too. Now, what would they do? They would probably call the police, right? And for good reason. Why? Because I'm not closely related to him. I'm not I'm not I'm not close enough. You see? The only way that I am getting in. On Johnny Cash's, whatever it is he left behind for his kids, the only way I'm getting in on that is if he chooses to bring me in. And if he does so by legal adoption. And so I want you to understand that there is no work salvation here. Jesus is saying is that those who do the will of God are those who have been adopted into the family of God. Those who have been brought into the family of Christ. This is... The doctrine of adoption, that's what we talk about. And and we see this in different places. John chapter one, verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, watch this, to become children of God, who were born not of flesh, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's the doctrine of adoption, that we have been made, we we have been given the right to become children of God. In fact, Galatians chapter three, verse 26, it says that for in, let's just read verse 25, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Did the light just come on? Are you, are you, are you getting it? So. Beloved, here's the point: the Father adopts us into his own family. And that's how we become the children of God. To commit to Christ is to enter into a new and genuine family. We have a new father and we have new fellow heirs, and we are fellow heirs with Christ. And this is one of the most precious doctrines of all scripture. Precious doctrines of all scripture. I love how Grudem puts it. He says, the doctrine of regeneration explains how we have life within us The doctrine of justification explains how we have standing before God's law, but the doctrine of adoption, our relationship before God, and the most precious benefits of that relationship to us are explained. It is in adoption we find the most precious promises so where we find not only that, the relationship with God that he has and that, that doctrine of adoption, that, that preciousness of our relationship to God is found all throughout every part of our salvation. In Ephesians chapter one, verse five, he chooses us as his children. In John chapter one, verse 12, he gives us the right to become his children. In Romans chapter eight, verses 14 through 16, we receive the spirit of adoption by which we cry out to him and commune to him, Abba, Father, and he hears us. Oh, Christian, how he longs to hear from you, how he longs to spend time with you, how he longs to commune with you. Beloved, some of my most precious memories are the times that I would spend with my grandfather who was kind of the father figure in my life. And some of my most precious memories were just spending that time with him. And I would literally give every penny I have just to be able to go on one more fishing trip with my grandfather. And I don't even like fishing. But those are some of the most precious memories that I have. And oh, Christian, do you know how much your Father in Heaven wants to spend time with you? Do you know how much your Father in Heaven wants to commune with you? Do you know how much your Father in Heaven wants to have fellowship with you oh christian do you know that the spirit is the one who guarantees your inheritance that you are heirs of the father joint heirs with the son and fellow heirs with your brothers and sisters in christ brother sister christian do you know these things and do you live them and oh sinner why would you turn away from such love why would you turn away from this kind? Would, would you turn away from Bill Gates if he offered to make you an heir to his fortune? If Elon Musk came to you and offered you the riches uh, uh, that all that he has, would you turn away from that? And yet all of those riches of Bill Gates and Elon Musk combined are nothing but cheap brass wind chimes compared to the great treasures and riches of God, our Father, that he has given us in Christ. And the greatest treasure of all is to know Christ. Why would you turn away from that? He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure of the field. He is the alpha and omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the lily of the valley. He is the bright and morning star. He is the rose of Sharon. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the true lover of your soul, and he is your greatest friend. How can you turn away, oh sinner? How could you turn away from that? What would the world offer you in exchange for Jesus Christ, your Savior? And so we saw this morning, we must be rightly related to God through Jesus Christ. We must beware of neutrality. We must become children of God, beloved Almost conversion is no conversion at all. Almost conversion. Mere interest in Christ with no commitment is a house that is in danger of being destroyed by squatters. I just read in USA Today a couple weeks ago where there's a guy in New York hadn't paid his mortgage in 25 years. They can't get rid of him. Lady in Sarasota, Florida, Finally got rid, finally was able to evict her squatter only for them to be let go and come back and not only break back in, but steal her car. Kind of makes you wonder it would have been better if she just let the person live there. One person got rid of their squatter and now the water bill they racked up is about $25,000. Their last state is worse than their first. Beloved, that is nothing compared to the last state you will experience if you come to church by experiencing some benefit, you come to church and you, and you try to be neutral with Christ, but you never make a commitment to be a disciple, you never commit to him as your Lord and Savior, the last state you will experience is far worse than it would have been if you had never heard the name of Christ at all. So come and rest your soul in Christ. Come, place your complete trust and faith in him. Commit to him as your new Lord. You cannot have Christ as Savior if he is not your Lord. You must repent of your sin and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The great church father, Augustine, began his, what is essentially his autobiography. It's a reflection of his conversion to Christ. And he began that great work with this amazing statement. He said, oh Lord, you have created us for yourself and our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. Beloved, are you restless this morning? Are you wrestling with sin? Habits you can't defeat because you're trying to remain neutral? Are you here this morning and you're just associated with the church but you've never made that commitment to Christ? Would you come this morning and would you let the word have its effect in your heart? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your love. Lord, we thank you for the amazing adoption that you have given us. Father, I ask if there's one here this morning that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray today would be the day you would draw them to yourself. May they know Christ, him crucified. May they suffer with him so that we might be glorified with him. Lord, may we consider all other things to be but filth and dung compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Christ and him crucified. And Lord, if there's a Christian here this morning that has tried to give up sin over and over again. They're on that roller coaster, but they've never really replaced it. They've, yes, they've tried to put off the old self, but they've never been renewed in their mind. They've never put much effort toward putting on the new self. Lord, may they seek out instruction. May they seek out discipleship and counseling this morning so that you may make them into a more perfect image of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. Let's all stand together and I just invite you to bow your heads and reflect on what we've said this morning. And if you're here and there's something on your heart or mind, maybe maybe you're on that roller coaster of just trying over and over and over again to put off sin, but you're just not, Enlivening your your faith, yeah, you're mortifying, but you're not vivifying. You're you're trying to put off, but you're not putting on. You're not being renewed in your mind, spirit of your mind. You don't want to be you don't want to be conformed to this world, but you're not being transformed. Maybe you're here this morning, and you've just associated with the church for so long, you. You're trying to be neutral about Christ, trying to be neutral about faith. It doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you believe, that's the lie that our culture tells you. That's neutrality. And that will not save you. So beloved, I invite you to come this morning.